Episode 184 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by our friends at Cloud Accounting Software FreshBooks with a free 30-day trial just for you. To check it out, go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. On the stage, I have to be willing to be affected by the other actor. And that means that I don't say my next line because it's in the script. I say it because the other actor makes me say it. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable features Feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. I am indeed Jeff, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. And today, we're going to be hopefully growing in the area of relating and communicating. My guest today is none other than Alan Alda. Yes, that Alan Alda, the one and only Alan Alda. And he's going to share with us all he's learned of the last quarter century in the art and science of relating and communicating. We'll gather in just a moment to talk about his brand new book, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? And we need to look no further than the current political climate to know that we've got a lot of leaders sharing their ideas in such a way that those on the receiving end actually do the opposite of what the leader would ultimately like to see them do. And a lot of the reason for that is because the way in which messages get communicated. It's oftentimes how you say what you say, not just what you say. If you or you and your team struggle at all with relating to one another, with communication, then today's episode is definitely for you. Our sponsor for today's episode, Cloud Accounting Software FreshBooks, helps me do a much better job of communicating and relating to my clients, helping me and them stay up to date on where we're at with the project, what's been paid, what hasn't been paid. There are many reasons I love FreshBooks, and I think you'll love them too, if you just give them a try. And that's all we're asking you to do is try it free for 30 days, no obligation to continue, and you get access to all of FreshBooks features during the trial. Nothing is held back. To check out all all those awesome features and use a product that I've been using since 2009. You can go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Be sure to enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash read to lead to take advantage now of that free 30-day trial offer from FreshBooks. I hope you'll check it out. Well, as you likely know, Alan Alda has earned international recognition as an actor, writer, and director. He's won seven Emmy Awards. He's received three Tony nominations. He's an inductee of the Television Hall of Fame and was nominated, of course, for an Academy Award for his role in The Aviator. He played Hawkeye Pierce on the classic television series MASH, and his many films include Crime and Misdemeanors, Everyone Says I Love You, Manhattan Murder Mystery, and Bridge of Spies. Alan Alda is an active member of the science community, having hosted the award-winning series Scientific American Frontiers for 11 years and founded the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. He's the author of two previous best-selling books, in case you don't know, one called Never Have Your Dog Stuffed and Other Things I've Learned and Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself. His latest book is If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. 
Well, Alan, when I, when I started this podcast four years ago, a relatively small project then, if someone had told me I'd be one day talking to you, I, I would not have believed that. So, so thank you, first of all. You're welcome. It's not so hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am excited and delighted uh, to do this. Uh, I want to talk first about a, a part of your background and career that, that m- probably most people aren't as familiar with. Talk, if you would, Alan, about the, the genesis for, for founding the Center for Communicating Science 20 years ago. What, what was the impetus for that? Uh, actually, the, the center itself was founded uh, uh, about eight years ago. But the, the impetus for it, the, the reason that it began was 20 or 25 ah. years ago when I was doing the television show Scientific American Frontiers and I was interviewing hundreds of scientists and sort of stumbled into a way of interviewing them that I think was unusual, at least in those days, which was not to come in with a list of questions and just give them the cue to go into a little mini lecture for the camera, (laughs) but to actually explain it to me so that I personally could understand what they were talking about, which made a tremendous difference. There was a personal connection that that had to happen for them to help me understand it. They weren't talking to the uh, un, unseen, unknown millions. They were talking to this one poor schmo who couldn't get it. <laughs> and the more, uh, the more I couldn't get it, the more they had to try to come at me with different analogies, different ideas, different ways of understanding it. And in the process, the audience was getting it in a variety of ways. And when I finally understood it, there was a better chance that they understood it too. And I, I began to think, what if, what if we could help scientists develop that same connection, that same open channel when they're talking about their work and be able to do it without somebody like me standing next to them trying to help it happen? So I got the idea that the way I had learned how to develop that connection with another person was through studying improvisation and all the other, all the other tools I use on the stage to relate to another actor, that becomes useful in relating to other people. Well, I can't imagine going into an interview, and I, I would imagine maybe the first time or two it might have been a little scary for you, but I can't imagine going into an interview not knowing what I was going to ask or not having a list of questions. As a, as a former broadcaster, I rely on that. Let me answer that because I, I, I think I know what you mean by that. <laughs> I had an advantage in that it wasn't in real time. I was interviewing them for an hour or two hours, and that would be edited down to a couple of minutes. So I had I had the luxury of being able to go far afield and still arrive at something that was coherent because the coherence would be obtained in the editing room. <laughs> and, and when I interview somebody in real time now on, on a stage, for instance, or in a live broadcast, I do have guideposts. Mm. I do have certain things. I mean, if I'm interviewing somebody about his or her book, I want to make sure that we talk about the book and mm. about things that the points that they're making in it. But there, for me, for my way of working, they're only guideposts because I really value a conversation. And I think a conversational approach brings out the real person more and makes that person more available to the audience. So 
So it's not totally without reference to thinking ahead. I do. I do think. ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you made uh, that distinction. Uh, you hinted a moment ago at, at some of the ways your, your acting career has impacted all this. Expound on how your career as an actor has changed the way you engage with with people in, in your day to day life. Yeah, it really has changed my daily life. I think everybody who's studied improvising would say that it's changed them if they're actors, it's changed them as an artist, but it's also changed them as a person. And and more and more improv is being taught in other situations, you know, in business and so on, because it has something unique to offer that most other disciplines don't, which is that it at the very basis of it, it connects you with another person in a very familiar way in a very short time. It's hard to get something done with another person unless you're on that kind of a close relationship. And beyond improvising, as I got better as an actor, I realized what it meant to relate to another actor. And in the beginning, I thought it just meant putting my face in theirs. So I was bending <laughs> over a lot <laughs> with, with hunched shoulders, just provoking them with my face. But you, you can actually relate to somebody if their back is turned to you, as long as you're taking in all the clues you're getting from them about what state of mind they're in, what state of emotions they're in. I've, I've found if I don't do that in life, I'm not really engaged with another person. And here's something that I found that led to a very... I, I, I I think it's a radical idea. Hmm. And that is on the stage, I have to be willing to be affected by the other actor. And that means that I don't say my next line because it's in the script. I say it because the other actor makes me say it Hmm. by something she says or does. And I have to be so open to that person. I have to be willing to be changed by the other actor in order for what I say next to be authentic. It'll have a certain flavor to it, a certain edge. And I find in real life when I'm listening to somebody, I don't think I'm really listening to them unless I'm willing to be changed by what they're telling me. And maybe not necessarily by the words they're saying. If they're telling me the earth is flat, (laughs) I'm probably not going to be changed to believe the earth is flat. There's too much evidence that it's not. But the underlying impulse of maybe I can connect and be positively affected by the fact that they're trying to figure things out. I'm trying to figure things out, too. And we can maybe meet at that level. But I think we got to meet at some level. Otherwise, we can't have a really authentic exchange. I loved some of your examples in the book to this end when you shared stories about how you interacted with, say, the cab driver or the delicatessen <laughs> cashier and attempting to label uh, their emotions in your mind just completely changed your interactions with them in the process. I, I do believe that it did. I was looking for a way to so that I personally could have this experience of reading other people without having to go to an improv class. Because <laughs> I I do improv a lot, but I don't do it every day. And I wanted I wondered if I could find a kind of emotional gym I could create for myself, mm-hmm. or I could practice getting into an empathic relationship with another person. And by the way, by empathy, I don't mean compassionate. I just mean knowing what they're feeling, because 
that's a tremendous tool for for uh, communication. It can also be a tool for not so good things like con artists. <laughs> con artists use empathy and really do well with it, not to our benefit. So I don't I don't see it as a, a goal to make the world a better place. But it is a tool if you want to make the world a better place. It's a great tool, probably a necessary tool. So what I tried to develop for myself was this kind of habitual way of relating to strangers and even friends where I would really pay close attention to, to an estimate I could make of what they were feeling. I can't know for sure, mm. but if I can get a pretty good idea from the expression on their face, from the tone of their voice and that kind of thing, I felt if I named it, that would really nail it down and I'd, I'd develop my empathy. It turns out it seems to work just actually paying attention to the person, just noticing them, noticing their hair color, noticing their their the color of their eyes. Sometimes I'd be talking to somebody for 10 minutes and I'd look away and I'd think, what's that face look like? And I'd see a blob instead of the face. <laughs> but they haven't really been letting them in. Mm. And the difference is, the difference that happens to me, and, and I think I've seen it happen to other people, is that instead of all my attention being on what I'm trying to communicate to them, my attention is on how they're receiving what I'm trying to communicate to them. And that's that seems to me to be fundamental to communication, because no matter how good my message is, if it doesn't land on them, then how good is it? And you make a great point. The responsibility is on us as the communicator, right? A lot of times I get frustrated with my wife because she doesn't understand something I've said. And when that happens, I'll often resort to saying silly things like, you, you realize I make a living talking, right? The problem is you, not me. And that usually doesn't go over very well, does it? <laughs> that sounds like it goes over great. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know what I do for a living? <laughs> yeah, you confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, is, it is our responsibility to make sure the message is landing. And that's a, that is also a radical idea because for centuries, teachers have been telling students, why don't you pay attention? Where's that stuff between your ears? <laughs> Learn this, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember so many teachers telling me about the stuff between my ears, but they're not getting into my ears. <laughs> well, as you have taught people, Alan, from all walks of life, uh, improv, and it's been amazing to me as I've read the book, uh, the ways that's impacted people. Do you find that many of them, those without experience in improv, come to this process with a lot of apprehension? And, and if so, d does that apprehension change through the process um, or they, they come out the other end worse for the wear? No, the, it, it, because the the exercises are so much fun to do, mm. uh, people get caught up in them and really enjoy the fun. There's so much fun, in fact, I have to warn them not to regard them as trivial just because they're fun. Mm. Because the, the, the way we've organized it in our workshops, and you're right, it's for all different walks of life, scientists, doctors, uh, business people, women in business, and so on. What we try to do is make sure they understand the relevance of these exercises to their, their workplace life. And instead of doing scenes, we mo once they have the basic of the improv vocabulary. Then we do role playing drawn from instances in their own particular workplace. And we keep reinforcing the idea that the exercises we did were not just warm ups, they're actual tools to use in these experiences that you have daily. 
Well, I wanted to ask uh, specifically about empathy, Alan. Is, is it safe to assume then that if, if I'm not a naturally empathetic person, are you saying that I can be taught then to be more empathetic? Yes, you can be. I know people who teach empathy and we in our own way teach empathy. We don't we don't always say you're you're going to be more empathic when you finish this, mm-hmm. but you are more empathic and you have the greater ability to read the other person. The whole thing is based on reading other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give an example is we can play a game of catch with a ball that doesn't really exist, but I hold the imaginary ball in my hands, just made of space. But the way I hold my hands tells you if you're paying close attention to me and if I'm really helping you follow me, if I'm following the responsibility I have to help you follow me, I'm careful about holding the ball the same way every time I hold it so it's the same size. And if I toss it to you, you see as it leaves my hands and by the way my whole body moves in tossing it, you see how hard I'm tossing it. You can judge how much it weighs. You can judge automatically as if it were a real ball how long it's going to take to get to you and when you catch the ball you catch the same size ball and it comes at you with the force it would have if it were real that ball comes into existence for people watching and for you by virtue of your observation of me and my observation of you we agree on the existence of the ball the same same way we agree in a democracy and and things come into existence by mutual agreement you know, if we ever tried democracy. <laughs> yeah, I would love for every politician on the planet to read this book. <laughs> it would make the world a better place. I, somebody I know who teaches uh, empathy said to me, you've got to send this to every member of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about how this applies, Alan, to to even written communication, that we can have an understanding of what's going on in the mind of our audience, even when they they're not actually in the room with us. Yeah, I, I, I'm ready for people to push back on this because mm. it sounds so odd because we're, we're going from observing people's faces, you know, as in the title of the book. If I understood you, would I have this look on my face where the, the solution is in that title to pay attention to the other person? So how could that possibly work in writing? Mm. And the way I think it works is that if when you write, and this is mainly for nonfiction writing, fiction writers I, I i'm a fiction writer too but other fiction writers tell me it doesn't work this way for them i find it does work this way for me a little bit so i'll just confine myself to nonfiction. Mm. you have something you want to transmit to another person and this in the same way if all you worry about is your message and not how it's getting into their brain and how it's affecting their brain sentence by sentence, then you're not really communicating as effectively as you can. Mm -hmm. You're just spraying them with your information. (laughs) So my effort when I when I write is even in the construction of a sentence, what are they most likely to be expecting to see in that first sentence? First of all, what the sentence is going to be about next, what's going to happen to that thing. And finally, the most important part of the sentence, for me, the punchline of the sentence, Mm -hmm. The, the position of uh, impact. And it's so interesting to read sentences that aren't built with those notions in mind of how a person's going to be receiving it most effectively. And sometimes what the sentence is about is buried somewhere in the middle or toward the end. And the most impactful part of the sentence is 
someplace else and the sentence dribbles off uh, ineffectively. But the next sentence is just as important. How does that begin in connection with the first sentence? Are you going to you're going to start us off in a whole other place so that we have to figure out what you're telling us? There's a lot of detail you can go into about this, which I won't bother with. But I think it's good to think about the basic idea, which is if you're thinking about how the reader is processing what you're saying and are you preparing their brain for each new thought, I think that the same principles that apply to improv and apply to verbal communication will apply to, to written communication. Can I, can I make that any clearer? Is that- <laughs> I think you did great. I think you did great. How does, how does say, things like the curse of knowledge play into that? What do you, what do you have to be careful with yeah, by, by the, knowing too much? A number of people, including us, have, have used the phrase curse of knowledge. It was first invented by a couple of economists about 20 years ago, having to do with financial instruments and transactions where the seller knows the real value of the item being priced and doesn't realize that the buyer doesn't know everything that the seller knows. Mm-hmm. If I forget what it's like not to understand something in the depth that I understand it after studying it for 20 or 30 years. And now I'm using a term, a word, a reference to a process that I really understand deeply, but you can't be expected to because you've been spending your life working on other things. That's the curse of knowledge. It's not a curse to have knowledge. It's a curse to forget the knowledge that you have is deeper than the knowledge the other person probably has. And it's no insult to make it clear. A lot of people are worried that if they if they make it clear that they'll be talking down to them. I think people have a tolerance for knowing that if you're making it clear, this is exactly what you mean by it. Because a lot of people hear a term and try to figure out what it probably means based on their other experience. And they go way off base. <laughs> and, and, and can miss what you say that follows as their, as their brain is doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, you're right. I mean, why cl- cloud their minds with trying to figure out what you're saying? If you can say it in plain words and then use the technical term, that covers all the bases. Well, as, as someone who has, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, has spent his life as a communicator, first in radio and, and now as a podcaster these last few years, I, I have to admit, I came to your book uh, initially thinking, you know, what else is there I can learn? <laughs> and, and I have to echo the sentiments of, of Charlie Rose uh, on the back cover of the book. There is plenty here that is new, uh, plenty here that is that is usable. That's a wonderful compliment. I really appreciate it. Thank well, you. Well, you're quite welcome. Uh, I have a couple of questions I want to ask you, uh, not directly related to the book, but before I do that, is there anything else from the book that you want to make sure that we we know about? No, I think that was very astute of you to pick up those things that I'm trying to explain in the book, and I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. And unlike most people who interview authors, I try to read the books first. (laughs) (laughs) Not just the cover. Not just the cover. (laughs) Well, speaking of books, uh, I'd love for you to think about one or two over the last few years that have had an impact on your maybe even early in life. What are those books that that when you think about have really, really impacted you? What are the ones that, that come to mind? Well, the book I keep thinking about was, first of all, all of Hemingway, Mm. which still, I think, informs the work I do in communication because he he was a landmark writer in simplifying language, sometimes to the extent that he parried it himself, unfortunately. But Mm. the language was so plain spoken and he was able to evoke emotion and settings with few words 
put very, very evocative words and kept away from adjectives and just made the words stand stand for the things and invoking the things made you see them and feel them. Mm. So that meant a lot to me. But uh, in in nonfiction, a book that meant a lot to me, James Watson, uh, his, his book on the discovery of DNA, which was so honest, it was one of the first science books I'd ever read that was so personal and so in many ways self-deprecatory, sometimes not self-deprecatory enough. <laughs> there were some things that maybe he uh, regrets having done in the mm-hmm. process of discovering it. But those books were written with such clarity that they really helped me understand parts of the universe that only scientists could understand with such depth. But they opened a door for me and I really appreciated it. And they helped lead me to this search I'm on now that I have been on for the last 25 years at least to try to see if we can get that the beauty of science uh, to be understood in such a way that it gives us the same pleasure that it can give scientists. It's an amazing look at the universe that most most of us don't have. And then once I started helping in that field, they themselves were telling me, you know, this is changing my marriage. Mm. Communication stuff is helping us talk to each other in a way that reduces the conflict and the friction because we're really listening to each other better. And I began to realize that teams were working better and we were able to, to begin to translate what we work on with scientists and doctors whose teams were being affected. There were teams in business that could be affected in the same way, and we just needed to tweak it to uh, to work in those settings as well. So I'm, I've really found by, by experience that this kind of applies to everything that humans do when they try to get something done. They have to communicate with one another. And what's ironic is anthropologists tell us that what makes us so much more successful than the other animals. They tell me it's due to our ability to socialize and therefore to communicate. And if that's what makes us tops in the world, how come we don't work on making that as effective as possible? Mm. And, and, and I'll add the, to emphasize a point I made earlier, just because you talk for a living doesn't necessarily mean you're good at it. And you know what I find is we can all improve. Since I've been working on this, I've got so much better. At least I believe I have. And and the response I can get from an audience makes me believe that I'm so much better at it than I was when I started. And I thought I was pretty good. I came into it with decades of experience of communicating with an audience and putting my attention more on how they were getting it than on what I was telling them. Just flipped it right over and a moment to moment in better touch with the people I communicate with now. And like that corny saying on the on the uh, bracelets, I, I, I love you uh, more than yesterday and less than tomorrow. I'm getting, I'm better at communicating more than yesterday and less than tomorrow. <laughs> well, you seem to stay uh, pretty, pretty active, pretty, pretty uh, busy. Uh, I'm curious to know what's, what's next for you. What are you and your team working on now uh, that you're excited about? Anything you'd like to share? Yeah, we're, we're, um, working on uh, extending our what we do in communicating to uh, hospitals to, to many hospitals we're bringing it overseas we, we were this year in Oslo and Dublin Scotland we're in Australia next year we'll be in uh, Israel so we're, we're spreading it around the world I think you have to have a vision and I started out with a vision that was kind of modest it was 
to rule the world <laughs> with teaching communication. Mm. And I don't know, you know, I'll be dead before it happens, but I'd love to see science and medicine taught with these ideas in mind. And we now offer this training to corporations and, and uh, it's a profit making company, the older, mm. older communication training company, ACT, ACT. It's a profit making company, but all the profits go to support the Center for Communicating Science. So it's it's uh, one helping the other because what, what the center learns, we use in the company and what the company learns, the center uses. And our first project has been women in business to try to help women have the tools that they need to navigate around the obstacles that still exist for women in business while the culture is continuing to change to a more rational culture. It's, it's really weird to me. Research study after research study shows that the higher women rise in a company, the better the company does with its bottom line. Mm. So I would expect that to be self-reinforcing. I mean, if you do better, then wouldn't you do more of it? <laughs> but it doesn't seem to work that way for various reasons. So there are still obstacles to be navigated around. And we're able to use this communication training to help help do that. Yeah. In fact, as I recall reading the book, empathy combined with the presence of, of women in teams helped those teams be more effective, not necessarily intellect, right? Yeah. That was so interesting that that particular study you're talking about or a series of studies showed that if you just pick a team based on their IQ, it won't perform as well in, in the a very wide range of tasks as a team where there are more women, they have better emotional, uh, you know, emotional quotient EQ, and also have a, a habit of letting everybody speak freely, which is a, a little bit in my mind that wasn't cited in the study. But to me, that's another example of empathy. If people are exercising a little empathy, they won't hog the spotlight or the microphone and they'll let the other person talk. I've been hogging the microphone, but I assume it's <laughs> sort of okay because it's an interview. Absolutely. Please feel free. That's an interesting point you bring up. Why do you suppose, uh, why, why isn't it self-reinforcing in your experience? You know, that... That's that's the $64,000 question. I think the trend is moving that direction, but certainly not uh, as as fast as many would would like to see. Uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna take I think more examples of of the success in that in that space. I think for it to to take hold. Yeah, I think you're right. I tease my wife often that uh, as owners of a 4K TV that she chooses to forego <laughs> 4K content and insist on using our brand spanking new television to watch shows from the 70s and 80s. And, and MASH is by far one of her very favorites. Well, I could have saved you a lot of money if we had only shot it in black and white. You could keep your, <laughs> keep your old Philco. <laughs> Zenith with a round screen. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. Thank you uh, again for uh, agreeing to appear here. This has been a real treat. And my wife has been listening in and I'm sure would love to uh, love to just say a quick hi. Oh, great. Hi, Alan. Hi. How are you? I'm glad to meet you. You too. I'm very glad you're giving prompts to Jeff here about uh, his communication. That's only going to make him better. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to meet you both. Thank you. You too. Alan, have a wonderful week, and we appreciate it again very, very much. Thanks so much, Jeff. Nice to talk to you.
It probably goes without saying that when you have a guest as well-known as someone like Alan Alda, the appeal broadens dramatically. And so with that in mind, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you enjoy the Read to Lead podcast in general, I would super appreciate it if you would share this episode with everyone in your network. You can use this simple link to do that. It's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 184. The number's 184. Four. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 184. Of course, that's also the link you can visit to get all the details on today's episode if you want to go deeper into the links and resources that Alan and I talked about today, including the books he referenced. And in the weeks ahead, I look forward to bringing you books like Ego Free Leadership, Donald Miller's Building a Story Brand, Clarify Your Message So Your Customers Will Listen, and finish, give yourself the gift of done by John Acuff, among others. Remember, there's no obligation to give our sponsor a try and you get access to all they have to offer just by going to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and entering read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.